All right, well, if you'll take your copy of the confession, if you have one with you tonight, we're going to be again in chapter 22 and paragraph number three. Uh, but I do want to begin in Matthew chapter number six. So we're going to start in Matthew six. I'm going to read uh, the first 13 verses of Matthew six. And I just kind of lay the foundation and some context uh, for the study tonight, which I've just simply entitled, Prayer is Worship. Prayer is Worship. Matthew chapter 6, of course, Jesus here is continuing uh, to expound and to teach upon his kingdom. And he is describing the very attributes or the characteristics of those who are of the children, who are children of the kingdom. In other words, these are things that he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching those that know him. Uh, this is not evangelistic in its, in its tone. Um, he's not preaching uh, necessarily here repentance, but he's teaching his disciples. And of course, one of the things that he's teaching his disciples as he was with them uh, was the teaching them to pray. In Matthew 6, uh, verse 1, it says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So the Lord is giving what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer or what we might refer to as the, uh, the, 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 the common prayer or the prayer uh, to the Father. Uh, and so he gives us the model. He gives us the pattern. Um, he gives them the understanding of that what they're doing is not to be seen of men. What they're doing is not to be uh, applauded by man. He, he actually gives them instruction of how to pray in secret, how they ought to pray uh, and understanding that when they pray, 
um, the Father sees them. So when they pray in secret, um, he'll see them uh, the, in opposition to the Pharisees who pray openly, and they want to be seen of men. They want to, and he says that's their reward. Their reward is, is they pray openly, they get applauded by men, that's their reward. Uh, but he says that the Father which sees you in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, he gives them instructions of not to pray with vain repetitions um, and not to, to pray just things that are, it's not just the repetition, but it's, it's almost like a canned type of prayer. You're just simply uh, praying out of a repetitive uh, mind. It, it's not really thinking and considering what exactly am I praying? Who am I addressing? Who am I um, actually expressing whatever my heart is? Um, he says that it's the heathen in verse 7 that, that use vain repetition. And he says they have, this, they have this fault in them. Uh, they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. So the heathen thinks if I speak longer, if I pray longer, that that's what's going to be the key to God hearing me. And he very clearly tells them in verse 8, he says, don't be like them. And so he says, don't pattern your prayer, don't pattern your prayer life after the heathen. Now, don't pray to be heard, don't pray to be seen, uh, don't think that praying repetition or praying great lengthy prayers is increasing the Father hearing you. Uh, and he gives us this wonderful reminder, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Again, again, remember, we're praying to a God that you're not praying to inform him. You're not praying because he doesn't know. He already knows what you have need of, but he, he wants us and he commands us to pray. And really, the reason that we pray is, is not because we want or we need. We pray because we're commanded. And so, you know, over the last few weeks, we've, we've been talking about the principles of worship. And we've talked last week about worshiping the triune God. And I think sometimes we fail to understand that prayer is worship. Uh, the preaching of the word is worship. Uh, the reading of scripture is worship. Uh, prayer just seems to get this um, almost on the outside looking in that prayer is this entity in of itself that isn't, it isn't a part of worship. And, and actually it is. And we know it's worship just by the way Jesus teaches them how to pray. Now, when he says after this manner, therefore pray ye, he doesn't mean pray these exact words. Uh, there, are some, there are some churches that they repeat the Lord's Prayer every time they gather. Um, and, and, and I guess in a sense, there's not anything wrong with that, but he's giving them the pattern. And, and you'll notice that he's, he's giving them the pattern of who they're praying to, how their prayer ought to be. Now, this phrase, our Father, which art in heaven, and we see that phrase and we see what that it, it's, it's how we address him. Now, how do we know how to address God? We know how to address God only through Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for Christ, we would not even know how to address God. And what this is teaching us here is our Father, which art in heaven. We know our Father because we know Christ. So only the believer can pray. Only those who know the Savior can pray to the Father. 
Now, this isn't a study on the Lord's Prayer, so we're not going to deal with every aspect of this and and what's being asked here. But I do want us to see that when Jesus is teaching here, he's teaching us a model of how we ought to pray. Now, I think it's very fitting that the last verse that we read in verse 13, which would be the, uh, what we would call the conclusion of the prayer, or we might call it the doxology of the prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, that, is, uh, that means everything that we're doing, especially in with regard to prayer, is for your kingdom, for your power, and for your glory. Uh, it, it's not for our, inter, our individual kingdoms. It's not for our power. It's not even for our healing. It's not even about us getting what we want. Prayer is praise because it is about the kingdom of God. Prayer is praise because it's about the power of God. And prayer is praise because it's about the glory of God. When we pray... Oftentimes, and we've all been guilty of this, and I'm not, I'm not saying this tonight to, to, to try to make you feel bad, because we've all done it. Uh, oftentimes, we, we run to prayer, and the first thing that we do is we just give God a list of all the things that we need. And we don't stop even for a single moment and consider that even when we address our Heavenly Father, that the only way we can address our Heavenly Father is because of what we know and who we know in Christ Jesus. So it's easy for us to run to prayer, but not think about how to pray. And what Jesus was teaching his disciples was exactly that. Now, in the confession, you'll see paragraph three. And this particular paragraph breaks down into uh, it almost a natural outline of expressions and statements, because you'll see that each one of them uh, just it, it's very clear. You see, first of all, it says prayer with thanksgiving being one part of of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted. It is to be made in the name of the son by the help of the spirit, according to his will with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, perseverance, and when with others, now this might seem strange to us in a known tongue, or in a known language. So what we're seeing here is with these other principles of worship, who we worship, the triune God, the regulative principle of worship, we're turning to prayer, which is really the subject of paragraph three and four. Now, again, we read Matthew six because I think Jesus, what he's teaching lines up, or the the confession rather, lines up with exactly what he's teaching in Matthew six. He was teaching his disciples to pray this way, to pray with this type of pattern, to pray with this type of, of form. Now, what is prayer? And it's, it's the question that uh, many authors have written thousands of books about, right, of, 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 the, of Christian publications. The subject of prayer is one of the most published, most popular Christian books. Okay, if, so if, you, if you're looking at a Christian-type writings and authors, prayer is the, usually comes up as the number one subject. Now, I would submit to you that it comes up as the number one subject, not because it's understood, but that it is the thing in which people believe should be a part of whatever their Christian experience is. 
The problem is, is most times we don't understand what prayer really is. Uh, prayer is something that is not to be entered into uh, without considering what it is we actually are doing. Uh, so you'll notice the confession writers here and, and the footnoted verses. We're going we're gonna to touch on nearly all of those. If we don't touch them all tonight, we'll do it next week. But praying to God, notice what it says, with thanksgiving, right? Prayer with thanksgiving is kind of what sets this. Thanksgiving is the very heart of prayer. So if I'm coming to God, I'm coming to God in a heart of thanksgiving. Now, I've got to, be, I've got to have something to be thankful for before I come to God. Again, sometimes in our motives, in our moments of distress and trouble, we run to God and just say, God, I need to be delivered. But that ought to be with thanksgiving. And notice he says, being one part of natural worship. Okay, well, what's natural worship mean? Does anybody want to take a shot at what natural worship means? If nobody, that's okay if you don't, but natural, natural worship, right? It just means we don't, we don't need a special revelation to know how to pray, right? So we don't have to um, dim the lights, sit quietly, and just kind of wait for God to reveal himself and say, okay, now go, pray. It doesn't require God to reveal something new or we don't have to have something specially uh, ordered for us, okay? Um, it's a natural response, okay? So as a child of God tonight, for example, um, there is a natural thanksgiving in your heart already about, I want to thank God, right? Like I don't... As a child of God, I don't have to convince you, oh, by the way, you know, you really ought to thank God. It comes natural to the child of God. The child of God already knows to be thankful. They, they, we thank God for the good, the good things in our life. We thank God for the goodness. Um, but at the same time, where do we go when bad things happen? We go to prayer, right? We, we, we go to prayer. That's natural. Right now, sometimes we get the order backwards, don't we? Sometimes we try to solve our own problem and then we go to God and we say, God, I, I tried everything else and now I'm coming to prayer. Well, that should have been your first step. Your first step should have been go to the Lord in prayer. Don't try to solve it. And then, you know, then when your plan fails, which by the way, your plan will always fail. Okay, just mark it down. You're, you're a failure. I'm a failure in the spiritual realm for sure. Now, I might be able to fix some natural uh, physical things in my life. I might be able to take care of an issue, but spiritually, I can't fix those. I can't fix those. I, those. Those have got to come from God. So we want to thank God when there's good things. We want to seek his help when bad things happen. Um, now in Keech's catechism, which is a, it's, it's not just for the kids, but in, in, in catechism question 109, it gives a definition of prayer I thought was very good. Uh, it says prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Okay, so you'll notice that even Keech was, was talking about an offering up of our desires to offer up, to worship, to offer our desires for things agreeable to his will. We're going to see that's part of what's being said here, agreeable to his will in the name of Christ all key to what the confession writers were writing here and also what Jesus is teaching his disciples in Matthew 6. 
Okay, he's, he, again, he's giving them a pattern. Now, in the Bible, God is described as a God who hears our prayer. Now, one of those footnoted uh, verses is Psalm 65 too, and you'll notice that is attached there to that first statement about it being part of natural worship. Well, here's what 60, Psalm 65 two says. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Now, the very fact that God hears prayer is really a remarkable concept. It's a remarkable principle um, that, that the God of all creation hears our prayer. Okay, and not just in an audible way. When it says he hears our prayer, he hears and knows the intent, the motive, the emotion, exactly what we are experiencing. Right? You hear my voice audibly, but you may not understand everything I'm saying. God, when it says God hears prayer, we often just narrow that down to say, oh, when I, when I, if I say it audibly or I say it in my heart, he hears it. Well, it's more than that. He not only hears it, he completely understands it. And like we read, he knows what it is before we even ask. So that's, a, that's something to be thankful for. We have a, a God that hears prayer. Um, we also have a God who answers our prayer. Psalm 143.1, the psalmist is already basing this upon the fact that he can hear. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness, answer me, and in thy righteousness. Now, the psalmist there is not saying, I demand an answer from you. He says, answer me. Why? Because he knows God will. Right? Oftentimes we say, God, I, you know, I, I, prayed for, I prayed for decades about something. God never answered me. Oh, he answered. He answered. The problem is he may have answered that was not agreeable to your will, but it was agreeable to his. And that's the key. Prayer does not go unanswered. We've heard that expression. People have written songs over the years in the secular world and in the Christian world. Unanswered prayers. They're all answered. They may just not be answered according to your will. And we're going to see that in our study that because sometimes we ask amiss. We ask wrongly. What we're asking for is not according to God's will. And in some cases, it might be a sinful request. But the psalmist in Psalm 143.1 knows that God hears. Uh, prayer is an essential and necessary part of worship. Right Again, just like the regular principle of worship and, and the triune God worshiping him, it's not something we program in, it's part of worship. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, one of the shortest verses in all the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, says what? Pray without ceasing. Now, he doesn't mean being a posture of prayer when you're on your knees and you've got your eyes closed and your hands folded. But what he does mean is he means that your heart is to be in a constant state of prayer, which that tells us that prayer is not just an act of something that we do in the heat of a moment. We do it because that is the worship of our heart. To pray without ceasing means each and every day I am continually, I'm praying. Now, what am I praying if I say I don't have a need? I'm praying about the goodness of who God is. I might be driving along in my, in my car and I might be praising God by myself. You may pull up next to somebody and they see you talking. That's not so unusual today because people are talking on phones and doing all sorts of stuff. But you may pull up alongside of me someday and you may see me talking. 
Sometimes all I'm simply doing is I'm just talking to the Lord. And I, I don't really care if anybody thinks what I'm doing is strange or not. It doesn't matter to me. But, and it doesn't always, not always audible. And sometimes there's things I'm driving along and I'm just praying in my heart. And I'm not asking God for anything. I might just be saying how thankful I am that God saved me. I may be doing something simple by just saying, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that you have given me a family. You've given me a church. Simple things, right? And that, that's, that's the concept here. Pray without ceasing. But Paul also wrote to the church at Ephesus to pray always. And he says, all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Now, again, that's a key. It's a key word there in the spirit, what he means uh, especially when we see how the confession writers wrote this. So first of all, we see this first phrase, prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men. Now, they understood that all men here with the footnoted uh, verse, or verses was those who know God, right? It, it's, it, God requires his people to pray. Now, sometimes our, you know, we think, oh, I can't pray because I don't have enough knowledge, right? I, I can't pray because I'm ignorant. The, the, the truth when God requires man to pray, and in Luke 18, 1, Jesus tells a parable when he says, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Uh, this is not an obedience to a, a moral ability, Right? It's not being said that all people with a certain level of understanding of truth and ability should pray. No, it says all men ought to always pray and not faint. So we can't use the excuse of saying, well, I, I can't pray because I don't have enough knowledge about who God is. Well, that's not, that's not what it tells us. The, the, the command is to pray. Right? Men ought always to pray. It, it's, it's not our ability to pray that's at the heart here. It's the command of the clear command to pray itself. Now, notice they dig a little bit further here. But that it may be accepted. Now, here's a key. What is not only what is prayer, what's acceptable prayer? And they make it very clear, and this is very scripturally based. It is to be made in the name of the Son. So what does that tell us? That tells us that no prayer that's offered, that's not offered in the name of the Son, is not acceptable. Now, does that mean that every time you pray, you have to mention Jesus' name? Does it, does it mean that, or does it mean it's being offered with the understanding and the knowledge that the only reason I can come into the presence of God is because of Jesus Christ? Most people end their prayer in some way, shape, or form in Jesus' name, for his sake, right? That's, that's not just a part of the cliched routine prayer. That's actually part of the requirement of prayer. Now, you may not say it every time, but if you're offering a prayer that's not being offered in the name of Jesus Christ to the Father, right? If you're going to speak to the Father, you have to. Remember we looked last week. It's not just salvation of how I get to the Father, I can't even get to the Father in prayer if I don't go through the Son. Right? So when we, when we, when we pray, Dear Heavenly Father, 
we're addressing God, we're addressing God the Father, but we're also, we wouldn't dare come to him outside of the name. So in order for our prayer to be acceptable to God, it must be made in the name of Jesus Christ. It's only through the Son that we approach the Father in prayer. There's a reason why we sang hymn 414 tonight. Approach the mercy seat. And in that hymn, it makes mention of the cross. It makes mention of our sins. It makes mention that the only way we can approach God is through the name of the Son. Now, Jesus says these exact truths in John chapter 14, uh, verses... um, Let's look at verse 6 first, and then we're going to drop down to verses 13 and 14. Uh, John 14, 6. John 14 is one of those... Uh, passages that is is almost overwhelmingly loved by all believers because it's that chapter that starts off with let not your heart be troubled right it's it's a it's a beautiful chapter there's so many great truths there but when Jesus says that familiar verse I am the way the truth and the life in verse 6 no man cometh unto the father but by me Jesus was speaking about access He was speaking about how do you get to the Father? Well, Christ, as we learned even last week, is the only mediator, right? He's the only mediator between God and man. So when we use that verse, no man cometh unto the Father, it's certainly true in salvation, but it's just as true in prayer. So you can't pray to a father you don't know because you can't pray because you don't know the Son. Right? I've asked, been asked that question many times. Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? And I say, well, audibly, He hears them, but He's not going to respond to them because they don't know Him. Right? Now, unbelievers like to think that they can just go to God when their troubles come, but you can't. In the name of Christ means you're coming as one who has acknowledged and realizes the only reason I have access to this throne is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if I don't understand that concept, my prayer is not acceptable. And again, you ask the question, why would somebody want to pray to a God they don't know? But that's what's at the heart here. Now down in verses 13 and 14, Jesus, again, in the same context, says, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, what's it say? That will I do. Now, will I do uh, doesn't just mean I will give you what you want. Now, that's the way this has been corrupted over the years, is they claim John, John 14, 13 says, whatever I ask in his name, he'll do. Well, here's the problem with that. That will I do doesn't necessarily only mean I will give to you. It means I will intercede for you. Now, that's a, that's a big difference. What Jesus is saying is I will intercede because you have asked in my name that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That is a very, very important concept here. Okay, Jesus, again, as that mediator, right, is doing all for the glory of his Father. Now he goes on in verse 14, if ye shall ask anything, here it is again, in my name, I will do it. Okay, so when we pray in the name of Christ, when we pray in his name, 
We are approaching God the Father in faith, by faith, in the Son. That's the only acceptable prayer. So if I try to pray in any other, through any other name, it is unacceptable prayer. That's what's at the point here. So we talk about this often in our church. Worship. What type of worship is acceptable? We've, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Worship is only acceptable through Christ. If you have a worship service and Christ is not who we're relying upon, His merits and His righteousness and independence, it's unacceptable worship. Well, prayer is the same way. So if, if I'm not depending upon Christ interceding on my behalf before the Father, my prayer is unacceptable worship and it's unacceptable prayer. Okay, now let me just stop there. Does anybody have any questions so far? We all pretty good on that? Okay, all right. So that it may be accepted, it's by and made in the name. Notice the next phrase. By the help of the Spirit. By the help of the Spirit. Now this may come as a shock to you. Acceptable prayer requires the help of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you would not even know how to pray right if it was not for the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are people who have become professional prayers. I mean, pray the house down. The right words, the right attitude. But if it's not assisted and helped by the Holy Spirit, it's not acceptable. Praying in the Spirit understands that we are weak creatures. We are, we are weak. Um, you and I are weaker than we even know. And weakness, all right, this is not that we're sinners, right? Not, weakness is not a sin, okay? But here's our problem, right? Is it fair to say that sometimes when we pray, we're confused, I'll, I'll shake my own head, yes. Yes, sometimes very confused in my own prayer. Right? Sometimes I know am I confused. Sometimes I'm praying and I'm disappointed. I'm, I am upset. I am, I am distressed. And I have all other sorts of concerns that I'm bringing when I come to prayer. And, and I don't realize how much those things are interfering with my ability to pray properly. Okay? This, I'm just being very real and transparent with you. That's how we are. I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about this holy prayer and how we, we, we get the right form and the right formality and we say the right things. But listen, we are so weak. There are times we come before the Lord in prayer and you are so confused and so distressed and so disappointed and so discouraged, you don't even know what you're doing. Which leads to some of the things they're going to deal with. When, when you see verses like you ask amiss, it doesn't mean that you are always got this sinful, malicious intent with God or that you're, you're turning into a prosperity gospel person. You know why we ask amiss sometimes? Because of the things we're going through. Because of confusion. I mean, I've gone to God many times where I've simply said, God, I am out and out totally 
confused. And that's just the times I recognized I was confused. I have no idea what's going on, God. I have no idea. Right? So it threatens our even capacity to pray. Our understanding of what prayer is. It's in this weakness that Paul was talking about in Romans 8, verse 26. When it says, likewise, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. Sometimes we just look at that and we say infirmities. Oh, that just means when I'm going, he's going he's to lift me up and help me with that infirmity. One of our greatest infirmities is weakness in prayer itself. How to pray properly. That's an infirmity. So it makes that verse in Romans 8.26 really come alive even more. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Well, we don't know what to pray as we ought because of our human weakness. You know, how often, and again, I've been guilty of this. You just, you know, someone's going through something and, and our, our professional counsel is this. Well, brother, sister, you just need to pray about that. It's not always that easy. And to me, that's the easiest answer you can give. And it might be the least concerned answer you can give. Because sometimes we are so weak, we don't even know what we should pray for. And so, notice that it says, but the Spirit, and I love this, the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groaning which cannot be uttered. Okay, so Paul even talking about prayer. And I love when you read the Apostle Paul's letters because you read a man who actually experienced this. I have a hard time understanding and thinking about Paul having trouble praying because I always think about Paul as being this spiritual giant who never had any confusion, never had any struggles, never had any heartache, never had any disappointment. And yet, there's no doubt he was human like every one of us, and he would have those moments where he had to claim thoughts like this. Now, the difference was he couldn't go turn to Romans 8.26 because he didn't have Romans 8.26. We have it. He didn't. He was the one God used to pen it. But what did he do before it? What did he do before he wrote Romans 8.26? Right? These infirmities, and that's what makes, again, the beauty of Romans 8.15, it's by the same Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? It's the Spirit that's crying out, Abba, Father. it's, It's the Spirit that's helping us. So we also see it's by the help of the Spirit. Now, what's interesting about the Spirit is, is that Jesus himself refers to himself as an advocate and the Holy Spirit is also called. Now, uh, the second and third person of the Godhead are sometimes called the paraclete or the comforter, right? So when Jesus says, I'm going to go away from you, don't miss this. He says, what? I will send you another what? Comforter. So Jesus was even claiming that he was a comfort. But he says, I'm going to send you another one. And I'm going to send the Spirit. In our studies in 1 John, remember 1 John 2, 1 told us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He's called our advocate. It's applied to the Spirit of Christ in John 14, 16, when he's called our comforter. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Right? So this by the help of the Spirit isn't to the exclusion of Christ. It's in addition to. Again, praying in the name. So Christ is an advocate for us. What does an advocate do? An advocate intercedes on our behalf before his Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Within every believer. You notice we didn't start our Bible study tonight. We don't start any service on Sunday and wait for the Holy Spirit to come down. We don't wait for the Holy Spirit to show up. You know, some churches got this a little bit backwards. They're like, the Holy Spirit showed up tonight. Well, if there's believers there, the Holy Spirit was already there. Well, we can't do anything until the Holy Spirit shows up. Well, if you're in a room of believers, the Holy Spirit's already indwelling everyone. There's no reason to wait for Him to show up. So where is that comforter? And where is that ability to, to pray properly? Where is it located? The Holy Spirit of God that dwells within you. You, don't, you and I don't know how many times it's only by the Spirit of God that we're able to pray at all. And so that's, that's the concept here. He makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, directs us, helps us, upholds us, expands the ability for our minds and our hearts to understand what prayer is. But the most important thing the Holy Spirit does is conforms our wills to God. Right? Our biggest issue is, is we, don't, we want our will done and we want it now. Prayer is not about getting your will and getting your desires done. It's about God conform my will to yours. We need the Spirit of God. We talk about this often. We need the Spirit of God to illuminate the Bible, right? We would never dare say, I understand the Scripture on my own knowledge. I don't need the Spirit. No, we understand that without the discerning Spirit of the Holy Spirit, we would not understand the Bible. So why do we think we can understand prayer without the Spirit? He guides us into all truth. Just like we read John 14, 13, and 14 is not a blanket declaration that simply says, you will receive anything you ask. That's one of the many areas where the prosperity gospel fallacy comes from. They use verses like that. They use verses that say, well, the Bible says anything I ask and all I have to do is say it in Jesus's name and I'm going to get it. No, it must be understood by the context of every other consideration. Acceptable prayer has to be according to the will of God. So what we ask in the name of Christ also is with the help of the Spirit of Christ must be be in accordance with the will of God. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have in Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. James 5.16, we're probably familiar with it. The effectual, 
fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In order for that effectual fervent prayer to avail, it's only prayer that is according to God's will. Now, in the context of that particular phrase or that particular expression, is in, you can turn there if you like, James 5, it's about affliction. And verse 13 says, is any among you afflicted? It's a good question. It's a question that we all, we ask, right? We see affliction in our church. Okay, what's it say when people are afflicted? Let him pray. Okay, affliction, if you're afflicted tonight, what should you do? Pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Please notice the order of that. One of the most ignored passages in Scripture. Is any sick among you? That one that's sick, let him call for the elders of the church. That means they call, they say, I am sick. I need you to come and pray. Let them pray over him. Right? You can see how this is happening. Anointing him with oil, that'll scare a lot of Baptists. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's very, it's, 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 it's almost so clear, you're almost like taken back about how this is supposed to work. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Okay, this is, the prayer of faith is not just this ritualistic prayer, if I pray it this way, but it is a prayer of confidence. It's a prayer of belief. It's a prayer of, I am praying according to the promises that God has made about himself. This is not a guarantee. This is not a guarantee of healing. It is a guarantee that God will act according to his character. Now, can we know the character of God? We absolutely can. How do we know the character of God? By what the Word of God tells us about Him. So this is a promise, right? So the Bible, again, now there, this, is, this is hitting on something. Again, we're not talking a lot about this tonight, but sometimes our sicknesses are the direct result of sin. Sometimes we're sick as a direct result of sin in our life. That's why there's the aspect here of if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him because sometimes those are sick because of sin. But they, they will come to God according to his character. They will be forgiven. Verse 16, confess your faults to one another. Right Now those faults are not going to a priest. These are faults that if there is something between the two of us, if I've wronged you, you've wronged me, we're told very carefully we ought to confess that between each other. We shouldn't allow that to remain. That's what that's talking about. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay? Now, effectual, it has the idea of working according to God's omnipotence, according to God's power. Okay? Now, availeth, 
Okay, it doesn't mean it always results in the answer that you want, but what it does truly mean is that that is where the power of prayer is. I am praying in dependence upon the character of God. You realize tonight God will never act contrary to any aspect of his character, right? He will never be something that he isn't. So he will never change. That's why we believe in a God who's immutable. He's not going to change his character no matter what the situation is. So sometimes we pray to God this way. God, you know my unique circumstances. So what are you actually asking God to do? You're asking God to change his character. My situation is so unique that you need to answer the prayer according to my will. No, it's always, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your situation is, it's always I'm praying according to the will of God. Right? So is it possible, right? Is it possible to willfully or with wrongful ignorance to ask things contrary to God's will? Again, notice the confession. This will be the last phrase we'll talk about tonight. According to his will. Right? James 4, 3 again. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Now, James is talking about here about prayer that is offered with wrong motives. Wrong intentions. Okay? It is possible to pray wrongly. A person can actually pray for something that is obviously sinful. Or they might even pray for something that appears to be holy and righteous, but at the root of it all, there's a proud desire under all of it. Right? It it would be praying. It sounds like you're asking for the right thing. It sounds like, God, give me, I I, want to be obedient to your will. I want your will to be done. But underneath it all, there's a proud motive. There's something else your intent is not right. I may never see that. Matter of fact, I'll never see it. But God would see it, right? So you, you ask amiss under those circumstances, what do we need to do if we've prayed with wrong motives? We need to repent of our sinful motives and whatever our sinful desires are. Now, it's also possible to have legitimate, what sounds like holy desires, which are still contrary to the will of God. So what do we do in those situations? What if we're praying about something that's a legitimate thing? Just because it's legitimate doesn't mean that it's God's will. This is the hardest thing for Christians to ever begin to understand. I could be praying for something legitimate, but it's not God's will. One of the great examples of that, and I'd encourage you to read this tonight or read it this week, is when David requested to God that he would build a house for the Lord. Now, I, I don't know in Scripture if there was a greater desire of a man's heart. Now, think about who's asking it. David, David wants to build a permanent structure for the house of God. Is that a legitimate a legitimate thing? Yeah, it's legit. David's asking. I mean, we think about David. David's called a man after God's own heart. We're thinking if anybody could ask this, ask a legitimate request, it would be David. 
So God hears David's request and says, sure, David, you can build the house. Is that how the story goes? Not even close. David is told, you're not going to build the house. It's not going to be you, but instead it will be Solomon. Okay, now David could have gotten all riled up about, well, I wanted to build it. This was me, but I love what he said. And again, I'd encourage you to, to read this on your own time. But in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 1 through 3, David, when he gets this prayer request back, he says, David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, the captains over the thousands and captains over the hundreds and stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons with the officers, with the mighty men and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me... I had in mine heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made ready for the building. Again, nobody is arguing saying this is a good thing. This is a legitimately good thing. But look at verse three. But God said unto me, thou shalt not. Now, what would have happened if David would have said, but this is a legitimate thing. I'm going to go ahead and build that. Would it have been acceptable? No. Do you know how many people have done that over the years? Christians have done that. God has clearly said, thou shalt not. And they said, no, I shall. Because it's legit. It has a holy, it has a holy feel to it. It's got religious backing on it. The God of all creation tells David, nope, you're not building this. Thou shalt not build a house for my name because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. Now God goes back and it, it, I mean, it really kind of strikes you. It's God telling David, no, you've got some things in your life sinful is the reason I'm preventing you from building this house. Now, if that happened to David, what makes us think that that can't possibly happen to us? I mean, we pray for things and we think I had all the right motives, I had all the right, I had the right environment, right thing, I've got my life cleaned up, I've done to... David and God says, "No, you became a man of war." Right? And there's a lot to that. I realize that. But he goes on, and again, you need to read the whole chapter, and he, he starts talking about his son Solomon, and he starts giving, he finds his own charges as to why God said, no, this is not my will for you to build the house. So what do we do in those situations? Under those situations, we simply submit ourselves to God's will for us, and how do we express our conformity? How do we express our submission? We, sub- we submit that in prayer. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do is just pray between you and God in that secret closet that Jesus talks about. God, I'm conforming my will to yours, even though I don't understand it, even though I don't like it, because it's your will. And just like it says that thy will would be done, not mine. And then finally, there are t- situations, and again, I talked to, talk to some of you about these things. 
You may be in a situation where you can't discern God's will. Don't treat those times as times of deep burden and deep trial. Treat those as times when God's growing your faith. Just because you can't discern God's will at a moment in time doesn't mean that something bad is happening. And it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. It simply is that we have to be willing to wait and see what God's revealed will is. So what do I tell people? What should you tell people? Give them the scripture, right? Tell them that where we're going to find our security, where we find our safety is when we submit ourselves to the will of God. Every prayer that goes up from this place on Sunday morning when we gather corporately should be submitted to the will of God. Every prayer you pray in your private prayer closet at home ought to be submitted to the will of God. Every family prayer you carry out ought to be submitted to the will of God. I am conforming whatever your will is. That's what my will is. Right? Now, sometimes we pray very boldly, and we are told to pray. Right? But we also need to understand that pleading with God, God, I mean, when's the last time we prayed this? Conform my will to yours. Right? We say, God, give me patience. What about God conform my will to your will? Right? So if his will is being done, what happens? It brings glory to his own name. Right? It, it, brings, it brings the honor to him who him it is due. And so we can be sure that if we ask according to his, in, in the name of the Son, according to his will, here's what's the guarantee. Those prayers are always going to be answered rightly. Right? So if you get an answer and the thing didn't go the way you wanted it to go, that doesn't mean the prayer was answered wrongly. It means God's will is being done. And I'm telling you, folks, it is not always... It's, it's really simple to leave here tonight and go home and say, Dear God, conform my will to your will until the first thing happens that doesn't go your way. And when it doesn't go your way, suddenly, well, well wait a minute, God, why not? I had all these things lined up. Again, conforming to the will of God, even when something's legitimate. So there's a lot of lessons in this. Um, so next week, we're gonna, we'll finish the second half of this. And you'll notice that uh, not only uh, are these things included, but he talks about understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. So we'll talk about um, those next week as we continue that. Amen.